0: Hi everyone! Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. I hope you enjoyed the special crossover Jubilee episode with a Flatpak History of Sweden last time, where we speculated about what might have been if the Kalmar Union had weathered all the storms and survived until 2023. I certainly enjoyed making it, and I think Osa and Chris did too. But now it's time to get back to what actually happened. On the last regular episode, King John's son, Christian, became king of Denmark and Norway under the name Christian II. He was talented, strong-willed, and stubborn. This was not least manifested in his refusal to give up his mistress, even though the Danish nobility and the Holy Roman Emperor, a.k.a. Christian's brother-in-law, demanded it. Today, we'll see him just as adamant about bringing the Swedes to heel and restoring the Kalmar Union, once and for all. Episode 69, The Final Showdown. By the spring of 1517, Christian had been king for a few years, and he had started to focus on the re-establishment of the Kalmar Union. As we covered last time, he was derailed when his longtime lover Duveke died, and he was busy trying to find someone to blame for that devastating event. In the process, he made enemies of a large part of the Danish high nobility, All this tension with the domestic nobility could be dangerous, and it made a war with Sweden risky. If Christian won, all would be well, but could he trust the nobles to back him if things went sideways in Sweden? Hmm. Even though Diveke was dead, Christian II kept meeting with her mother, Sigrid, for talks about politics and finance. She remained a close confidant and advisor to the dismay of the Danish council of the realm. They had hoped that when the mistress was dead, the king would also forget about her mother. But he didn't. The king trusted her more than he trusted the council, and she functioned like a de facto minister of finance, even though she was both a commoner and a woman. The fact that she didn't have any official title did little to placate the upset nobles, who felt this was an outrage and an affront to their honour as well as a threat to their privileges. It was probably on her advice that Christian II favoured trade and the growth of cities. He forbade trading in the countryside, making it easier to tax commercial activities. Toll was to be paid at the gates to the cities and towns on all wares that passed in. Christian also tried to direct Scandinavian trade to the Netherlands and away from the Hanseatic ports to weaken the German influence in his kingdoms. This too may have been Sigrid's doing since she was of Dutch descent. But Sigrid was far from the only non-noble who had Christian's ear. The king appointed non-nobles to various important tasks in his administration, even as bailiffs, castle commanders, and governors. Instead of keeping these powerful posts for the nobility that the king didn't trust, he hired people based on competence instead. Even in the king's chancery, the blue blood was running thin. Out of 36 secretaries, 27 were sons of burghers, 9 were born in the Holy Roman Empire, usually in Schleswig-Holstein, and only nine were nobles. This hiring policy had the added benefit that the people who worked in the royal administration were more loyal to the crown. These commoners who worked for the king knew that they were wholly dependent on him. They had no family connections who would help them if they fell out of favour. This made their work more effective and they also skimmed less money off the top for themselves. That increased the crown's incomes and control, A win-win as far as Christian was concerned. But it irked the Aristos. And later on, Christian II found yet another way to push the buttons of the Danish nobility. He initiated a major legal reform, pushing for the introduction of a Danish law code that would replace the various old regional laws. These regional laws had been developed by the local things since the 12th century, and by now, that is, the early 16th century, the most important of these regional laws ...was the Jutland law, which had spread and was applied far beyond the Jutland peninsula. The king wanted one unified law code for all of Denmark. But conformity wasn't the only goal for the project. He also wanted to strengthen the crown, the peasantry and the burghers... ...at the expense of the nobility and the church. As I mentioned a moment ago, Christian hoped to develop the cities by channeling all the trade their way. But even though Danish peasants weren't allowed to trade at home anymore... They were compensated with the lifting of the ban on peasants leaving the estates where they were born. Medieval Danish peasants were often treated as commodities, sold and bought by rich landowners. Christian's new law put a stop to that and allowed peasants to move if they were treated poorly. Christian got inspiration for his new laws from the Holy Roman Empire and the Netherlands. In June 1520, he'd gone on a trip to the Netherlands to see his brother-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor. He wanted the emperor's support in the upcoming showdown with the Swedes. The emperor didn't offer any help in terms of money or soldiers, but Christian did pick up a book or two about continental laws and he observed how the Dutch cities were organised. A lot of this was later reflected in his legal reforms, so the trip wasn't a complete waste of time. The work on the new law code was finished in the fall of 1521 and Christian wasted no time implementing it even though it proved to be quite unpopular with the upper echelons of Danish society. To put it bluntly, the nobility and the church were appalled. But there wasn't much they could do about it. For now. But they didn't like it. They didn't like it one bit. The next item on Christian's to-do list was Sweden. Even though he hadn't managed to convince his brother-in-law to contribute money or troops, he was still hell-bent on taking control over the renegade kingdom and re-establishing the Kalmar Union in full. Back in 1512, the Swedish Council of the Realm had met and elected a new steward after Svante Nilsson, who died at the end of episode 67, drifting apart, just days before he was about to be ousted for his poor handling of the war with Denmark. The new steward was Erik Trolle, a well-connected member of the high nobility. His base was in the area of Lake Mälaren, but he also owned land in the border region, and several of his half-siblings lived in Denmark. This may explain why he was open to the idea of re-establishing the Kalmar Union, as long as the Swedish council of the realm was granted far-reaching autonomy to rule Sweden. So a window of opportunity opened up to solve the conflict between Denmark and Sweden in a peaceful manner. But unfortunately for most people involved, that window was slammed shut when Erik Trolle was outmaneuvered by the dead steward's teenage son, called Sten Svantesson. By the summer of 1512, after only a few months on the post, Erik Trolle was forced to step down and hand over the highest office in the land to the son of the former steward. And unlike the moderate Erik Trolle, Sten Svantesson was a hot-headed separatist who had zero interest in re-establishing the Kalmar Union. To strengthen his nationalist credentials, he even changed his name to Stensture, even though he had no family connection whatsoever to his predecessor as with that name. As steward, Stensture Jr. promised to work together with the council, but in practice he had his own policy that he pursued, and to be able to implement it, he acted in secret to strengthen his own position domestically at the expense of the council. Two years later, in 1514, the grand old man of Swedish politics, the Archbishop of Uppsala, who had been the leading member of the Council of the Realm since the 1470s, decided that he'd had enough, and that it was time for him to step down. At that point, he was in his 80s, which was an impressive age in the Middle Ages, when people lived much shorter lives than they typically do today. According to canon law, he had the right to appoint his own replacement if he stepped down, and he used this opportunity to appoint a young man called Gustav Trolle as the new Archbishop of Sweden. Gustav was only 26 years old at the time, and neither learned or particularly pious, but he was well-connected. In fact, he was the son of Erik Trolle, the man who had been pushed aside when Steensture Jr. claimed the title of steward. I don't think I have to tell you that there was no love lost between the young steward and the young Archbishop. Especially since Gustav Trolle was a proud, ambitious, stubborn, and hot tempered man. In other words, he possessed all the top qualities you'd be looking for in an archbishop. Things came to a head already in 1515 when the steward decided to confiscate land belonging to the archbishop. This included a strategic castle north of Stockholm that the archbishop was really fond of. Gustav Trolle refused to hand the castle over to the steward. Instead, he started to stockpile provisions and bringing cannon in preparation for a siege. The steward tried to get the council on his side, but failed. That didn't mean he gave up, though. Instead, he attacked the council members who opposed him by confiscating their lands and castles and even arresting some, including Erik Trolle, the archbishop's father. Officially, the accusation was treason and cooperation with the Danish king, but everyone knew the real reason. The steward started a siege of the archbishop in his castle in the fall of 1516. Stenstuder Jr. wanted to turn his accusations of treason from mere hot air and propaganda to a legal reality and actually put the archbishop, his father and a bunch of other nobles on trial. But this was too much for the high nobility and the council members protested saying it was up to them to adjudicate in cases like this. Several of the members of the council were uncomfortable with the whole affair. They were far from convinced that the archbishop was colluding with the king of Denmark, and they feared that this was a part of a major power grab by Stenstude Jr. Since he'd run into trouble with the council, a meeting of representatives of all the Swedish estates was called for in November in Stockholm. At that meeting, attended by representatives of the nobility, the clergy, the burghers and the peasants, the steward finally managed to get the archbishop convicted of treason. Gustav Trolle was deposed as archbishop and his castle was to be torn down. The defeated cleric was brought to Westeros castle, where he was locked up. The result of the trial was bad news, not only for the archbishop, but also for the high nobility. The steward had managed to short circuit their power and had appealed directly to the people. With this judgment, the meeting of the estates had basically claimed supremacy over both the church and the council of the realm. This was nothing short of a constitutional earthquake. It was arguably also heresy, because canon law forbade a secular power from sitting in judgment over members of the clergy. A man of the church should not have been put on trial by a secular authority. That rule applied to the humblest village priest, and definitely to an archbishop. Stenstuder Jr. knew this, of course, and so to make sure that the decision to try and convict the archbishop wouldn't come back and bite him in sometime in the future, he had all the leading representatives present at the meeting sign the ruling to incarcerate the archbishop and to tear down his castle. That way, they would all be equally responsible for the decision, so there wouldn't be anyone in particular who could be accused of this crime against the church and God. Practically Every leading man in Sweden was tied to this decision, and as a consequence, no one would be able to use it against anyone else either. It was against the backdrop of this turmoil in Sweden that King Christian was planning to reclaim the Swedish crown. The king was raising troops and money, beefing up the fleet and hiring mercenaries in Germany. But at the same time, he was also spreading propaganda. Christian wanted to undermine the Swedish will to fight, so he had letters written and carried with pilgrims going to Trondheim, to Nidaros Cathedral, to the grave of St. Olav. They were to spread these letters among pilgrims coming from Sweden. The letters described how the Danes had much more resources than the Swedes, which was true, and that King Christian had a whole bunch of powerful foreign allies such as the Holy Roman Emperor, which wasn't strictly true, even though the King of Denmark was on good terms with the Hanseatic League, the Poles, and the Russians. After Easter 1517, the latest truce between Sweden and Denmark ended, and Christian obtained the Danish Council's approval to invade Sweden to re-establish the Kalmar Union. Still, it wasn't until early August that the Danish fleet finally reached Stockholm. The soldiers landed on August 8th, and on August 13th there was a first round of fighting. That was another round of fighting four days later, on August 17th, but it didn't end well for the invaders. In fact, it was a bit of a fiasco for the Danes. They had no choice but to board their ships again and return to Denmark. But Christian hadn't given up. Already the following year, in the spring of 1518, he'd raised a new army. To pay for it all, he'd been forced to borrow large sums, and he'd hired the cheapest mercenaries around for this second attempt at invading Sweden. These cheaper mercenaries were cheaper for a reason. They were disloyal and dangerous for all parties involved, enemy and employer alike. But it was all Christian could afford at the moment. On June 6th, 1518, the Danish fleet set sail again. This time, King Christian was personally present on one of the ships. Just before midsummer, the fleet reached Stockholm. The king landed north of the city and placed his troops on on the Brunkeberg ridge. Christian expected a new battle there, a revenge for his grandfather's defeat almost half a century before. But even though Christian and his army waited for days, Steenstude Jr. didn't show up to fight. The Swedes stayed safely behind the walls of Stockholm and didn't want to risk meeting the Danes and their German mercenaries, even if they were cheap. So Christian was forced to change tactics. The Danish army moved south of the city and there they built fortifications and started to bombard Stockholm's walls and gates. This went on for weeks, but in late July, the walls had finally sustained enough damage for Christian to order an attempt to take the city by storm. Bloody fighting ensued, but the defenders managed to fight off the Danish army twice. At this point, Stenstuder Jr. decided it was time to go on the offensive. The steward led an army out of the city, and on July 27th, the two sides met in battle. As usual, the Swedish army consisted mostly of part-time peasant soldiers, but nonetheless they won, and the Danes and the German mercenaries had to retreat. It was a humiliating defeat for Christian. Now food, money and gunpowder were running low in the Danish camp, and so was the loyalty among the German mercenaries. In a last-ditch attempt, Christian ordered a storming of Stockholm under the cover of night, but the Germans refused. In response, the king had some of their officers executed, but he also realized that the campaign had, once again, failed. On August 7th, some five weeks after their arrival, Christian ordered his soldiers to break camp. The troops reboarded the ships under bombardment from the walls of Stockholm, both of artillery fire and of jeers. Adding to the humiliation, there was no wind, so the fleet hardly moved. They all had to disembark again on an island in the archipelago, barely out of sight from the city. Christian decided to use the unscheduled stop to initiate negotiations with Stanstere Jr. He sent a letter to the steward offering a truce that would last over winter. In the meantime, Danish troops were pillaging the countryside to put pressure on the Swedes. Christian even tried to convince the steward to come to his ship to negotiate in person, but Stanstere Jr. refused perhaps remembering the fate of Knut Alvsson, who'd rebelled against Danish rule in Norway 15 years before, when Christian was the viceroy there. As you may remember, the unfortunate and too trusting Norwegian rebel leader had been murdered as soon as he boarded a Danish ship in Oslo Harbour, where he'd gone to negotiate. Instead, the steward and the king agreed to meet on land, at a church south of Stockholm. But first, as a gesture of good faith, they'd exchange hostages. On October 2nd, The Swedes sent six noblemen, including Stenstude Jr.'s closest advisor, out to the Danish fleet in a small rowboat. But instead of being met by a vessel with Danish hostages, a Danish warship approached them. The Swedes got suspicious and tried to escape, but they were caught and brought onto the Danish ship by force. As soon as the wind allowed it, the Danish fleet then set sail south again. Stenstude Jr. only found out about this Danish trick after a few days, when he returned from the designated point of meeting, where he'd waited in vain for the Danish king to show up and negotiate. Once he was back in Denmark, King Christian immediately started to raise more money to pay for a third campaign against Sweden the following year. In 1519, in preparation for this third attempt at crushing the Swedish resistance, the Archbishop of Lund excommunicated Stenstede Jr. because of the way he'd treated the Swedish Archbishop, Gustav Trolle, and Sweden as a whole was put under interdict, basically meaning that the church should go on strike in the country. Using the treatment of Archbishop Gustav Trolle in his propaganda, Christian was turning his war against Sweden into something of a crusade. But he'd better succeed this time. He was running out of money, and the Danish elites, who didn't like him much to begin with, were growing increasingly impatient with his military failures. Stinsdure Jr. celebrated Christmas 1519 at Vesteros Castle. It was there, in early 1520, he was reached by the news that the Danish army was on the move again, this time over land. That was bad news for the steward. His position was weak, the Hanseatic League was blockading Swedish trade, and no major European power was interested in aiding Sweden against Denmark. He had no money to hire mercenaries, and several noblemen who hadn't liked his treatment of the trolleys, father and son, could be expected to switch sides under the wrong circumstances. Stensture Jr. had hoped to have the winter to recuperate and strengthen his position, but the time for the final showdown was upon him. The Danes sent two army columns north, one through Westrogothia and one through Ostrogothia. They hoped to split the Swedish forces in two this way, making the defenders too weak to withstand the onslaught of the professional Danish army. Even though it was in the middle of the winter, the conditions were actually excellent for the Danes. The ground was frozen and there was only a little snow so the troops could move fast since they could march across anything, fields, swamps and even frozen lakes. As the Danes moved north, they pillaged and published the bull excommunicating Steensture Jr. These were nailed to church doors so that the Swedes would know that their leader was at odds with the church. Whatever the Danes might have hoped, Stensture Jr. decided not to divide his forces. Instead, he concentrated them by the Lake Osunden in Westrogothia. The Swedish peasant force didn't have the training or the modern weapons the Danish and the German soldiers had, but the steward had approximately 5,000 men at his disposal. They spent some busy days digging trenches in the frozen ground and building defensive positions, cutting down trees to create barricades. That kind of thing had proven effective against professional Danish armies in the past, as you may remember. On January 20th, 1520, the Danes could be seen approaching from the south. The Swedish defenders had taken a position at the northern end of the lake, hoping to take advantage of the Danes having to cross the open terrain of the frozen lake itself in order to reach the Swedish line. At the beginning of the battle, Stensture rode among the troops, encouraging them, trying to improve the battle morale of the peasant soldiers. It was probably needed. Unfortunately, as he was passing among the soldiers, the Danish artillery had started bombarding the Swedish position, and the steward's horse was hit by a cannonball. To make matters worse, it hit Stenstuder Jr.'s right leg, just under the knee. The leg was ripped off, and the horse of course died immediately. The steward was still alive, but he was no longer in any condition to participate in the battle. He was promptly brought away from the battlefield, but since there were no other commanders to take his place, the battle was over before it had begun in earnest. The leaderless Swedish soldiers broke their formations and withdrew into the forest. There, the army just melted away among the trees. Many of the peasant soldiers made a run for it, hoping to get home safely. In the days that followed, the Danes pillaged unimpeded as what remained of the Swedish army kept retreating. The seriously wounded Stenstuder Jr. hadn't been able to resume command due to his injuries, and without coordination and command, the Swedish forces could do little to stop the Danes from continuing north. Stensture Jr. was rushed towards Stockholm on a sled, but he never made it. On February 3rd, he died on the ice of Lake Mälaren, west of Stockholm. When the body was brought to the city, it was met by the widow, Christina Jelensjana. She buried her husband and took command over the defence. Even though she had just lost her husband, she had no plans on giving up the city. Four days later, the two Danish army columns linked up and continued the last part of their march together. There was no organized resistance anymore, but some small bands of peasant soldiers would still attack from time to time, making the march tense. The Danes were also running out of food, gunpowder and salt, despite all their pillaging efforts. And the cheap foreign mercenaries were as unruly as ever, and couldn't be trusted to follow orders. They behaved in a way that was considered disgraceful even by the very low standards of the time. It was no doubt hard to win Swedish hearts and minds under these circumstances. Nonetheless, at this point, most Swedish nobles were willing to give up and accept Christian as king of Sweden. On March 6th, an agreement was signed in Uppsala, where Christian promised to keep Swedish laws, rule with the Swedish council and respect aristocratic privileges. In exchange, the Swedish nobles accepted him as king. But Kristina Jelensjana was still defiant. At this point, things looked bleak though. The Swedish troops, still resisting the Danish invasion, only held a handful of places, such as Westeros and Kalmar castles, and Christina herself held Stockholm. But the situation wasn't completely hopeless. The Danes were running out of food and gunpowder, not to mention money to pay their unreliable mercenaries. And the Danes could expect to be plagued by supply issues for the foreseeable future. It was still winter, and even though the winter conditions had helped the army move quickly through the frozen terrain, there was no food to forage, neither for their soldiers nor for their horses. Their only hope to find additional food was through pillaging. There was sporadic fighting throughout March, but on Good Friday, April 6th, 1520, a more organized battle took place. The Swedes were once again mostly peasants against the professional Union army, but the mercenaries hadn't been paid in a while, and they were losing their discipline. The battle took place just south of Uppsala, between the modern-day university hospital and the student sports field, close to the stream that flows through the city. Spring hadn't arrived yet, so the ground was still frozen. It even snowed quite a lot, but the temperature must have hovered around zero because the snow was wet. Basically, it was the most depressing kind of April weather imaginable. The humidity made it tricky to use gunpowder, which was bad news for the German mercenaries, who relied heavily on their firearms. From time to time, the conditions made it impossible to fire a gun. The battlefield was also cramped, so the Danish cavalry couldn't charge properly. But the Swedish peasant army had less problems moving around. To make matters even worse for the Danes, another 1,000 soldiers from Stockholm showed up to support the Swedish defenders exactly when they were needed. The fighting was fierce. Several of the Danish officers were wounded. The army commander himself was shot with two arrows, and the man who held the banner was both wounded and captured. Some of the mercenaries tried to get away by crossing the stream, but either because their gear was too heavy or because they were moving in large groups too close to each other, the ice gave way. They fell into the freezing cold water where they drowned. When it looked like they had won, the Swedish peasants lost their discipline and they started to loot the fallen soldiers instead of finishing the battle. The mercenaries Christian had been able to hire may not have been the best, but at least they knew how battles worked. When they noticed that their Swedish opponents had lost interest in fighting, they regrouped and attacked. The peasant soldiers were taken completely off guard by the renewed attack. They failed to meet the onslaught, and those who weren't cut down fled in panic across the snowy fields southward in direction of Stockholm. When it was all over, hundreds of peasants lay dead on the field, and they remained there for months because the Archbishop, Gustav Trolle, considered them traitors and therefore refused to allow them proper Christian funerals. The Archbishop wasn't big on meekness, forgiveness, turning the other cheek, and other such things that the Church preached. The Danes had won a decisive battle, and it had been in the nick of time before they ran out of money and supplies. Now the road to Stockholm lay open. In late April, Christian II himself boarded a fleet loaded heavy with food, salt, gunpowder and money to supply his victorious army that was marching toward the final showdown with Christina Jyllandschana, the only person standing between the king and total victory. Before he left, the Danish council took the opportunity to complain about the cost of the war in Sweden, so the king knew he had to win and do so quickly to avoid the complaints in the council developing into something more serious. When the fleet reached Stockholm, the king once again set up camp south of the city. The army that had arrived over land from the battle at Uppsala were camped north of the city together with troops belonging to the archbishop Gustav Trolle. Since the fleet now also blocked the waterways, the city was surrounded and under siege. The Danish artillery started to bombard Stockholm. Several fires started within the city and buildings were destroyed, but the worst damage was caused to the walls. The southern wall was almost completely destroyed, so the defenders had to construct an improvised new defensive line to keep the Danes out. Parallel with the bombardment, Christian was also active diplomatically. The king met with representatives from various regions all over Sweden, trying to convince them of the justice of his cause. Anyone who came to see Christian received salt as a gift. This was very popular. The trade blockade against Sweden had meant that there was a serious lack of salt everywhere, since it couldn't be sourced or produced locally. So everyone needed salt because it was an essential part of food preservation in those days before refrigeration was a thing. This policy of bribery of the masses worked and slowly people started to re-evaluate Christian II and the Kalmar Union. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to have a king who could get the trade going. After all, What good was independence if it meant no salt? So the trade blockade against Sweden that Christian had put into place was actually one of his most effective weapons at this stage. It had been expensive for Denmark to get the Hansa to agree to it, but the king was confident that it was worth it. He knew how important provisions were for the city. Remember, his own mother, Queen Christina, had held Stockholm Castle for almost a whole year, but had been forced to give up when she ran out of supplies. Luckily for Christian... The city had far smaller supplies this time around. By late summer, the situation was bad in Stockholm. Because of the blockade, no aid or provisions were going to arrive, and the inhabitants knew it. When the king sent two members of the Danish council to negotiate, and they promised complete amnesty, the resolve of the defenders started to waver. They were ready to give up and let Christian have Stockholm, on one condition – the defenders demanded that the Swedish archbishop Gustav Trolle add his official seal to the amnesty decision. They wanted to make sure that the archbishop wouldn't exact revenge on them for deposing him, locking him up and destroying his castle. The archbishop agreed after a clause had been added to the agreement that the church and its representatives would be richly compensated for the treatment they had suffered under Stensture Jr. and so the deal was finalized. Full amnesty was proclaimed to those who'd opposed King Christian. Their property would not be touched, and Stockholm would not have to pay for the king's foreign mercenaries. This calmed the burghers, who were fine with the terms. Kristina Sten Stensture Jr.'s widow and the last defender of Stockholm, had her personal freedom and safety guaranteed. She didn't just get to keep her current property and estates, but was given a golden parachute in the form of even more land. The official handover of the city and the castle took place on September 7th at 8 o'clock in the morning. The king rode in on a large war horse through the southern gate where the defences were in ruins. The mayor met and handed over the keys of the city. All the church bells tolled and the people were out in throngs to see the triumphant king. He rode slowly through the city that was scarred by the Danish bombardment and as he reached the main square He had heralds, blow trumpets and declare peace. From there he went to church, celebrated mass and thanked the ecclesiastical establishment for aiding him. Only then did he continue on to the castle, known as Three Crowns, after the three golden crowns that adorned the top of the highest tower. At the castle, the king was met by Christina Jyllandsjana and the Swedish council members, who had remained loyal to her. She handed over the castle to him officially, and then, They all swore loyalty to Christian II as the true and just king of Sweden. They went further and agreed to accept young Prince John, Christian's three-year-old son, as his heir. That was something that the Danish council had expressly refused to do, so the inclusion of his son must have pleased Christian. The king stayed in Stockholm for a week. During that time, he replaced all the key office holders at the castle and in the city with loyal men. He also demonstrated that there was limits to his magnanimity by executing some rebels who'd refused to give up and therefore weren't covered by the amnesty. Christian then sailed off to Copenhagen to deal with some pressing issues, not least related to the complaining council members, but also to see his wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time. But he'd be back in Stockholm soon for his coronation. Already on October 19th, the king returned to Stockholm, He let it be known that his coronation would take place shortly, and that it would take place in Stockholm, and not, as tradition demanded, in Uppsala. Hearing this, the people frantically started to tidy up as much as possible for the occasion. The city was a bit of a mess after all the recent fighting. Rubble was cleared, houses were repaired, and the harbour was cleared of ships that had been sunk, and vagrants and beggars were kicked out of the city. On October 31st, a ceremony took place where Christian was declared and accepted as king by the people. Traditionally, this was done at the stones of Mura, outside of Uppsala, but Christian chose another location, the Brönkeberg Ridge, just north of Stockholm, the very place where his grandfather had suffered that catastrophic defeat in 1471 and been shot in the face to boot. Representatives from the church, the nobility, the burghers, and even the peasants were gathered, surrounded by the king's soldiers, and answered yes when they were asked if they accepted King Christian II as their king. On Sunday, November 4th, the coronation took place, in the same church where Christian's father, John, had been crowned 23 years before, the very same church where you find the monument commemorating the victory at Brunkeberg, St. George and the Danish Dragon. The man who carried the crown was the commander of the Union army that had won the victory for Christian. At the end of the solemn ceremony, a representative from the king's brother-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor, Karl, walked up to the king, gave a little speech in Latin, and hung the heavy chain of the Order of the Golden Fleece around his neck. It was the most prestigious chivalric order in the Holy Roman Empire, and only a select few princes had the honour of belonging to it. Christian was on top of the world. Then followed three days of extravagant parties to celebrate the coronation. Everyone was having a great time, even the Swedes who technically had lost a war to the newly crowned king. But in the morning of November 7th, the third day of celebrations, a group of clerics approached the king. They had some urgent business to discuss with him. The leader of the group was none other than the Archbishop Gustav Trolle. They handed over a document to the king, a document that would kill the festive mood. Next time, we'll talk more about that document. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Life Hack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovemall, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies. Or speak useful words, or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash scandinavianhistorypodcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.